And welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Saunders, and this is your home for discussion about unsiloed fundraising and innovation in the nonprofit sector. And we're thrilled to be talking today about a, a very innovative fundraiser and thought leader in the space, Olga Waltman, who's founder at Lemon Skies. Uh, it's an agency that uh, works with uh, nonprofit organizations, and we're going to talk about um, current trends in uh, digital fundraising and marketing and uh, a bunch of other things. I was recently a guest on Olga's uh, live stream, uh, People of Substance. I was honored to be uh, a guest on that show and very happy to have her here on the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast right now. Olga, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today and for your time. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an honor to have you here. And uh, we have a lot to talk about today. I think it's going to be a fun discussion. Um, I really have appreciated um, your work as a thought leader in the space and uh, some of the things that you've done, not just uh, professionally, but also uh, your personal networking. And, and I want to talk about all of that. But first, um, we'd like to get to know a little bit about your fundraising story, how you got into this great business and where you are today, if you wouldn't mind sharing your story. Sure. Um, so like many of us, um, I sort of fell into nonprofit space and uh, very quickly discovered that it suits me very well. Um, one story, I don't know if I've shared it with you. Um, when I was just fresh out of college, I uh, recently moved to Washington, D.C., um, and I was in the application process for CIA. Um, true story walking into an interview process uh, surrounded by very serious people in uh, very serious dark suits. Um, and there was this moment of, that's not the place for me. And soon after I got a job at my first nonprofit organization, and once you're in the space, you sort of stick around. Wow, that is an amazing story. Uh, we've had a lot of unique ones on the show, but I think you're the first one with a connection to the CIA. Um, I have to ask, um, obviously, you chose a different path and you found your way into the nonprofit sector like so many of us. Is there anything from um, your previous interests or your previous studies that you have found to be helpful in, in the world of nonprofit fundraising? Yeah, so Deb, that's a great question. My background is in communications, marketing, and political science. So that's essentially, in a nutshell, what I do day in and day out, marrying the marketing and communications. Really, that's uh, that's how you get to sound uh, fundraising strategies. Uh, and certainly, political background and learning how to how to understand and work with different issues and different topics uh, has helped me work with my clients um, and organizations I have been at. So it sort of really brings it all together in a single place. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, also a broadcast communication major in college. And uh, I love asking that question because most of the people I've talked to on the show, most of the people I've met in this business um, didn't have a direct pipeline into the nonprofit space. So it's really interesting how we have this industry of people that came from all these different backgrounds and have the, all these skill sets that have been able to apply them to nonprofit marketing and fundraising. And I just think it's a really unique and kind of cool sector in that way that not many people um, set out to do that professionally. That's right. I, I would agree with that. And I think it brings different perspectives, different approaches to problems. So I, I think it makes us better as a sector. Absolutely. I, I think I, I think not having a formal 
college education in, in fundraising. Um, I, I found, I, I think it, I found that I think it, it helps, it, it forces you to kind of think on your feet, to adapt, to learn things, to dig a little bit deeper and um, maybe makes for a, a more dynamic space. So, but we appreciate you sharing your story and your background with us. Um, and would you mind sharing some about Lemon Skies, what you do there and how you help nonprofit organizations? Sure. Um, so Lemon Skies, um, really the way we describe ourselves is a smart strategy and creative ideas to help good causes. And that really encapsulates the vision behind the company. Uh, it's really to work uh, with causes and organizations that do good work and helping them tell their story, helping them shine. Um, everything from fundraising and communication uh, strategies uh, and planning to producing impactful content, um, everything you can think of from messaging strategy to uh, case for support to fundraising appeals, um, impact reports, uh, any sort of uh, content, and increasingly doing more and more coaching to help um, to help professionals in the nonprofit space uh, to to sort of think think through problem problem solve um, to come up with ideas to help them get uh, big campaigns off the ground. Yeah, one of the things that caught my attention when we first started talking is that you drew a very uh, clear distinction between fundraising and marketing, which is interesting because um, a lot of people who work in the space either don't draw that distinction or sometimes have trouble defining what falls into each category. So how do you personally define um, what you would classify as fundraising and what you would classify as marketing when you're working with nonprofit organizations? Sure. Well, and this is partially based uh, in my, my own experience. Um, I think on the marketing side, and I've, I've said on the marketing side of the house, um, it's all about highlighting what's great about the organization. Uh, on the development side and fundraising asks, it's all about the donor. It's about their ability to, to make an impact. Uh, as a marketer, you're always trying to spotlight uh, achievements. As a fundraiser, you're always looking for the need um, to sort of spotlight where donor can uh, can make a difference and step in. Uh, that being said, you know they're sort of approaching the same topics and the same issues from a different angle, uh, but it is a continuum. And certainly, I would never advocate for fundraisers and marketers to sort of go into their respective corners and not interact. It's really important to to always communicate, collaborate, to make sure that uh, you're mutually supporting supporting each other and each other's goals. Yeah, that was my next question is um, we still, I don't know, I'm curious to hear what your opinion is on this, but I find that we still are in a very siloed industry. And that's where um, one of our founding missions of the podcast is to help unsilo it, to connect the worlds of marketing and fundraising and um, mission work. Um, do you find that that's still the case? And, and it because you work on all these different areas, do you see advantages to somebody that has insights into both uh, communications that are not necessarily fundraising oriented and donor development? H how advantageous is it to kind of have access to both sides of that spectrum? So I, I think it's less of a question of how different we approach the work we're doing. It is, it is really a continuum, fundraising, uh, is certainly supported by communications. I don't think there's a hard and fast line. Um, I, what I find to be really valuable for any organization is creating opportunities for people to come together and collaborate, um, to exchange ideas, to understand each other's points of view 
and where each is coming from. And then also through collaboration, you end up with new insights that you would not have otherwise. Um, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. This week I was reading um, that physical proximity to colleagues. Um, I think it's eight meters is the magic number. Um, if you're within eight meters of a colleague, uh, you tend to collaborate and have these uh, spontaneous conversations and exchanges that could actually lead to great ideas. Uh, and the further apart you are, the, the more seldom those conversations will happen. So facilitating those types of interactions across departments, across um, different entities uh, can be extremely valuable. Uh, in our virtual world, that takes a very different form, obviously, uh, but just really creating that culture where um, you, have, you may have your swim lanes and set of responsibilities, but creating a culture where it feels safe to, to collaborate and share, I think ultimately everyone benefits from that. Yeah, and, and one of the classic examples that I think of with this is, um, I know as a fundraiser, a lot of times um, organizations that we work with, the social media pages may be handled by the communications or the marketing teams. And because that's not considered to be fundraising, they're not necessarily in the development meetings and, and vice versa. And I mean, I know I, as a fundraiser, a, a very easy research activity is to kind of go to a, a social media page and see what are donors reacting to? What are their comments? What are they like? What are they not like? What's getting them excited? And, and I learned so much of that as a fundraiser that can then be recycled into development. And, and likewise, I think it's important for people who do work in marketing and comms to hear, well, what is motivating donors to give? Because if there's a story that um, we know helps um, resonate with donors, we want to tell that story and highlight those things and get those messages out there as well. So I agree. I think just the basic communication collaboration is, is so important and so beneficial for all involved. I think it makes everyone's life a little bit easier. And, um, and, and, and honestly, I believe makes everyone's job a little more efficient just because you have access to more information. I'm always curious for firsthand advice on kind of how to make that happen. Is this as simple you think as putting everybody into a meeting either virtually or in person once a month or every so often and just kind of sharing what's going on? Have you seen any uh, strategies for collaboration that have been particularly successful? Yes, I think it's a combination. That's a great question you're bringing up. Uh, it's a combination of formal and informal opportunities. Uh, what, it, what I think it comes down to is creating the culture where it's encouraged and welcome uh, in both formal and informal settings. Uh, it's you know, whether you're sitting down as a larger team and creating editorial planning uh, and continue to check in on that to make sure uh, we're aligning, um, we're thinking through which audiences we're communicating with, but it's also, um, you know, whether it's through teams and informal exchanges, uh, encouraging interactions, encouraging um, relationship building, um, and sort of taking that initiative to, to connect with your colleagues um, outside of your immediate circle, because very quickly you start identifying, you know, when somebody's top of mind, uh, you, you sort of have this thought process of, hey, so-and-so is working on this project, it might be useful to bring them in. Or, you know, didn't, uh, didn't my colleague on marketing side describe something recently that could be really beneficial to our fundraising campaign. So it's really just creating that proximity, um, if not physical, certainly top of mind uh, for people to engage with each other. And, um, you know, suddenly your thinking evolves and you start um, thinking outside of your own boundaries.
And you mentioned culture a couple of times. So it's important, I think, for uh, from the top down to establish that this is a culture throughout the organization, that this is not only expected, but encouraged. We, we want people to collaborate and have mutual goals. It's not as simple, I imagine, as just saying, hey, go out and do this. You, this really needs to come from leadership from the top down. Yeah, I don't know if it's a top down. It's certainly leadership. I mean, culture is a very complex, um, complex thing, right? Uh, humans are complicated. Um, and sometimes culture is driven not necessarily top down, but by having people that really sort of um, take out the negative negativity and sort of offset uh, things that could derail conversations. Uh, and sometimes it comes from the most unlikely uh, sources and sports. Um, I forget the name of the player, but there's a basketball player who was not necessarily uh, the best player on his own and his own right. But whenever he was on the on the court, uh, team overall did significantly better. So it's finding those kernels, those uh, those humans that uh, build up others around them by by their presence. Uh, they have that um, they have that sometimes quantifiable and sometimes not quantifiable touch uh, to make everyone collaborate and kind of creating that sense of safety, interaction, collaboration, uh, that's extremely valuable. So they, they may not be the ones scoring the points, but when they're on the field, everybody else is scoring the points. I, I love that. And sports analogies are always welcome on this show. I, I love them because they're so relatable and they help make those connections. But I, but I agree. I think that's a key component of leadership is creating opportunities for others and also creating an atmosphere where people um, feel comfortable sharing and collaborating and knowing that they're not being judged just simply based on their individual performance, but how everybody is contributing uh, to the overall goals of the organization. So that that's just a, that's great advice and, and great example. And, um, it, it, you know, one, one, one other question before we move on is um, different vendors that work with nonprofit organizations. Um, it, do you have any advice from your experience or just any thoughts on general what we could do to get companies that work in specialize in direct mail to talk more to companies that specialize in digital to see collaboration opportunities that they can then bring to their clients? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it really parallels uh, how you create culture within the organization and it's bringing those vendors to the table. Um, it's sort of creating, uh, again, uh, a sense of safety that uh, reminding everyone why we're working on the project at hand. There is this greater why and removing sort of the need to, to jockey for attention to, to show off how smart you are and saying, we're here for the same purpose. We're on the same team. So how do we do the best possible thing so that we can um, have a greater mission impact? Um, I've actually experienced that firsthand where um, in a couple of different entities and a couple of different iterations uh, where vendors that you may consider competitors in some ways, uh, but working with the same client were brought to the table um, and with the sort of the context of we take our respective hats off before we walk into the room and our job is to come up with the best possible ideas, best possible strategies on behalf of the client. So it's sort of... Um, almost this instantaneous team building exercise. It's not about competing. It's not about jockeying for, uh, for your next contract. It's about ideas to, to achieve our goals. And uh, that plays a really powerful role. Yeah, I think that's an industry, that's a stigma that we're still trying to shake is this idea that we're all competing 
um, for different donors. And, and in, a, in a lot of cases, I think just the, the multi-channel behavior of consumers has changed all of that. And, and there's been a number of studies at, at this point which show that just direct mail donors receiving email and engaging with emails adds to their retention, adds to the lifetime value, even if they never give digitally. So my viewpoint as a direct mail fundraiser, someone who primarily works in that space, um, is that if I can collaborate with um, a consultant or another company that can uh, create a better digital experience for direct mail donors, that's going to improve their retention, their lifetime value. It's going to make direct mail more valuable, allow the organization to invest more. And it, it, I see it as a win for everyone. And, and I, I agree. I, I think a big part in making that happen more is kind of um, moving past this notion that we're all competing with each other for the same donor and, and looking at it more as we as, as an additive effect that uh, if donors have a better experience, um, it's going to lead to more opportunities for everyone. Right, to better outcomes. And I think it's um, on the organization itself uh, that brings uh, different vendors or different partners to the table uh, to kind of set that context, to, to give reassurance, to, um, to, to avoid behaviors that sort of pit um, different partners or vendors against each other trying to prove their value, but just really kind of creating, um, you know, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it, uh, but it is providing reassurance and um, reinforcing that we're all here for the same purpose, for the same reason. And that purpose is not the, it's not about the functions or activities that we perform, it's about the outcomes. So, uh, you know, rising tides, all boats, um, that expression goes. Absolutely. Good advice for those who are on the client side, who are decision makers, that uh, if you, in, that sometimes it's necessary to encourage that type of collaboration amongst your supporting vendors, that it may not happen organically. And I found there are a lot of companies that are willing to collaborate and share, but sometimes that does have to come from the client side to really kind of put it into action. Um, and I appreciate your perspective there. Um, we, we certainly want to get your, um, uh, certainly tap into your knowledge about what you see as key trends right now, either for fundraising or marketing. Are there any uh, particular trends that you, you would like to highlight that you're seeing as being effective right now um, for either side of that equation? Yeah, so... That's a wonderful question. And I've been reflecting a lot, not just on trends in our space, but what are the larger trends in how we, um, in how we interact, how we human, how we um, engage on a daily basis uh, with our world. Um, you know, the use of technology um, and the type of content we consume changed very, very dramatically in 2020 for all the obvious reasons. And it seems as we're sort of... Um, fingers crossed coming out of, uh, of the two, two plus years of pandemic, it seems to be changing again. Um, you know, there was this tremendous spike in how much people, how much time people were spending streaming and binge watching and in social media. And as we're going out again and are able to interact with people in person, uh, that has declined. So I think the trend I'm seeing is adaptability and really focusing on what's important and what's a priority for your organization. What are the sticky wickets? What are the, the most important problems to solve for? And focusing on those rather than chasing a particular trendy thing. Uh, and that will look very different for um, an animal rescue shelter versus uh, a think tank. 
Uh, so it's sort of hard to, to apply the same, the same criteria. Um, you know, again, you know, it's such a big global event that happened over these past couple of years with the pandemic. Um, I think there's a reset in our values and what's important. And that's probably partially driving uh, this change in we're seeing fewer gifts, but we're seeing larger gifts, larger commitment from a lot of donors. Um, so I think there is a little bit of a um, sort of reset um, stripping down um, some of the external factors. And when you're sort of in your own home and with your families, um, we, we've changed as people. And um, I don't know if it will fully swing back or if, if it is here to stay, but, uh, but I think appealing to those values and connecting with those values is really um, important. And, you know, there's this, we always talk about relationships, but there's really no better strategy than deepening relationships with people who care and support you as an organization or as a human for that matter. Um, so, you know, I'm seeing a lot of that and deepening relationships. If it's a major donor, certainly you can dedicate resources to pick up the phone, you know, handwritten notes, et cetera. But what do you do uh, with your run of the mill uh, subscribers, supporters, and how do you how do you maintain and deepen those relationships? So technology, I think, is the really uh, core component to, to facilitating that. Um, uh, wow. I mean, you touched on a lot there that I want to circle back on because uh, I think there's uh, several super important points. Uh, the first thing about kind of looking at your organization's priorities, um, do you think that includes kind of taking a hard look at who your donors are, not necessarily who you'd like them to be, but who they are, what their demographics are, where they are, and making sure that you're um, you're prioritizing those those spaces. So, I mean, the 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 example I would use is that um, it's still kind of is a is a turnkey piece of advice, but it's pulled back a little bit the last couple of years. But there was a period of time where everyone said every nonprofit needs to be on Instagram. And I think that that is true if you have um, a mission that connects in a very visual way, uh, uh, you know, things like, like animal welfare clients. I mean, that's a, that's a no brainer for them to be on Instagram and it's a great way to emotionally connect with donors. I don't know if it's going to be as impactful and make as much sense for organizations to put a lot of bandwidth into Instagram if you don't have a mission that connects visually. So is that the type of thing that nonprofits should be looking at? Because I feel like we're reaching a tipping point here where there's so many different channels, so many different ways to communicate with donors that if you do try to chase trends or these kind of best practices or these, these hot new tips that you can easily get lost in the shuffle in trying to do too much with too little? Um, I would say I'm going to give you two answers and they're in some ways opposing, but they're very much in balance with each other. So on one hand, I completely concur that chasing the latest um, and making sure that uh, that you're participating in every latest trend is just not helpful to anybody. We all have finite time and resources to invest. So it's really prioritizing uh, what will make the difference for your particular organization and what problems you're trying to solve. And there's no right or wrong um, answer to that. Uh, what's a priority for you within, uh, within the context of your organization may look different uh, to somebody externally, but it's really kind of leaning into those priorities and doubling down on them, knowing that you may have 10 
uh, 10 different priorities to the identified where do you start? Uh, because you can't boil the ocean all at once um, to be effective. So rather than dabbling, really kind of understanding what will make the most difference and focusing on that. Uh, that being said, I would never steer anybody uh, away from innovation. And it's always keeping an eye out for opportunities, but the right types of opportunities. So, you know, if you're if your audience is not on uh, on Twitch, you probably should not be streaming on Twitch uh, unless you're trying to gain new audiences. So it's always being, um, it behooves all of us uh, to be aware of what's happening. Uh, what are the innovations? What are other organizations seeing success with? But applying those to your own context. So you're not just blindly following uh, just to make sure that you can report out that you're doing it. Instagram is a great example. I mean, some some causes are just not visually appealing. That's okay. Right. Not everyone needs to be everywhere and every type of donor isn't necessarily um, going to uh, appeal to every type of organization. But there are groups where live stream fundraising like, makes a lot sure. of sense to expand into. I mean, um, one of the, or the, the causes that I think has a, a lot of opportunity there is... Um, um, the environmental space, because for a long time, um, they're still very successful in direct mail, but of course that's an older yeah. audience, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It just kind of goes with the demographics of having a direct mail donor file. Um, but obviously that's demographically, that's a very appealing issue to younger donors and what better place to try to connect with them than whether they're spending the most time and attention. That seems like a natural extension. Other causes, uh, Everyone wants to get younger. Everybody wants to have younger donors, but other causes are going to have a much harder time, I think, making that transition uh, into that medium. So um, I, I love what you said, and, and I agree. It's it it it's simple as making a list of your priorities, and and I think being honest about what your organization does and who your donors are, and and where you're most likely to make the impact if you want to expand into new areas. But absolutely, keeping an eye to innovation is critical as especially as, as things keep growing as, as rapidly as they are and expanding. Yeah, it's being extremely honest and also just setting realistic uh, expectations for yourself of what success looks like. Um, you know, social media, does it impact your fundraising efforts? Absolutely. Uh, but if you're signing a hard and fast ROI number, that may not be necessarily a true reflection of the value that it will have for your organization. So it's just really being thoughtful about how you're setting the bar, how you're defining that bar. And to your point, uh, just being very, um, very honest and very, um, and very clear about why you're doing something The you know, the question of why needs to precede everything you do. Your point about deepening connections and relationships, I also find fascinating. Um, a couple of months ago, I had uh, Luis Diaz on the program from the Donor Participation Project, and we were talking about the importance of community and not just the importance of it, but the value of it for nonprofit fundraising. Uh, he's done a lot of interesting work in that area. And, and that's something that fascinates me looking at the next 10 years of fundraising is especially coming out of the pandemic, um, it seems like we have less source, fewer sources of community than ever before. Look at the numbers of people who attend religious services or belong to membership organizations. And yet something happened during the pandemic where I think we realized on an innate level that we do want to be with people and connect with people, mutual interests. And, and I just think nonprofits have such 
a, a cool opportunity to be part of that answer because we have groups of donors who are inherently passionate about the same thing. And what a cool thing if we could kind of connect them to each other and build uh, a community around our donors. I think it would be you know, good for the donors, good for society, good for nonprofit organizations. People are less likely to leave an organization that's so uh, integral to, to who they are. Um, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? What do you think the potential is there for nonprofits to kind of reposition themselves as a source of community as another way to build human connections with their donors? Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Um, you know, it's sort of the second we stop thinking about uh, donors as being donors and numbers, and we start thinking about them as humans, um, the the more natural those relationship building and community building becomes. Um, you know, sometimes we in, get involved in certain things or we continue coming, not just because we we have a relationship with the building or the entity we're joining, it's because of the relationships we, ha we have with others. So community building, uh, whether it's a virtual or in-person or just sense of uh, common purpose uh, is extremely important. So, uh, you know, kind of tapping into this value reset as people are trying to, to seek out a higher purpose and we keep seeing all these uh, studies about um, younger generations being more purposeful and more mission-driven and willing to, to take a pay cut to, to have a sense of fulfillment in their job and making a difference. Uh, those are all really important uh, factors uh, that we haven't quite harnessed yet. Yeah, and in some ways, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult, um, I think it, it, it's a new mindset for a lot of nonprofits. There are some organizations that have done a really cool job of, uh, of becoming sources of community for their donors, but not every organization is inherently in the mindset of seeing the value of, um, of having community meetups or yeah. virtual book clubs, or, I mean, it, the list is almost endless when you start thinking about ways you could bring people around uh, together around your organization, even if it's not, directly related to your cause, but it really requires a shift in mindset about what nonprofits do and uh, what our, our mission is. But ultimately, ultimately, I believe this is in the interest of nonprofits because I do think it'll improve donor retention, something we're all concerned with, because it's just going to make people that much more connected to your organization if it becomes a source of community for them. Um, any thoughts? Yeah. How do we, how do we, start that conversation with the sector about the value of doing these types of things? Well, I think there's a certain insecurity that if we connect them to each other and we're not controlling the conversation and if we're not participating in every interaction, what will happen? So I think it's um, taking that leap um, and trusting and you know, certainly you can put certain guardrails in place and you want to sort of um, direct conversations in, in certain uh, in certain direction, but I think creating these places and uh, opportunities to connect for your donors, constituents um, is important and relinquishing some of that um, need to control every interaction and in every time and place I think is important uh, because it's impossible and meaningful, moderated, meaningful connections. And I think um, sort of learning from your own experience as you're going and calibrating as needed. Uh, it's not going to be a runaway success um, on the first try out of the gate. So it's been, it's been okay with trial and error and certain things will stick and work and certain things won't. 
Yeah, and I also think if we're, if we're talking about being donor-centric and caring about our donors, if, if the reason for not doing these things is not having control and not trusting those interactions, what kind of message does that send? And, and I, I think the classic example of this is um, Facebook groups are a great opportunity for organizations to kind of cultivate a group of super fans that want to interact on a di different, a deeper level. Um, many organizations won't go there because they have to give up um, having full control over the content. That's and, right. and I think that's the kind of thing where if you're not willing to trust your donors to engage in these relationships, what kind of message is that sending? So there's a lot of untapped potential out there, I think, for the sector. And, um, you know, some things that aren't, aren't too innovative and out of the box that could easily be done to try to deepen the bonds between our donors and between the donors and the organization. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's not about technology that's so above and beyond futuristic. It's about um, kind of setting up the context in a way that can be used by donors. And I think very naturally, um, or constituents, very naturally, you'll start seeing um, certain leading voices uh, emerging and kind of bringing everybody to the table. And it's cultivating those people uh, that that seem to have that, uh, that touch and engagement uh, that no, not only are they leaned in and participating themselves, but they are capable of engaging others around them. Um, that being said, you know, I keep coming back to the notion of what's right for your organization, because there are certainly some entities that have very complex, um, very uh, controversial topics. So those may be a little bit more challenging to, to present with sort of completely open forum conversations. So you really have to take a look at uh, the history of how your constituents engage what you expect and what is the purpose of these uh, of these facilitated places and uh, and moments? Um, and Olga, uh, while while we have you, uh, I, I do want to ask you about your experience as a content creator yourself. Um, you know, you've been one of the people that has really inspired me on, on online and looking at how you're willing to to put yourself out there in different aspects of your life, um, which is not something that's that's natural and easy for everyone to do. Um, would you mind just kind of talking about your journey as a content creator, how you started doing that, and then ultimately what led you to, to start a, a weekly live stream? Sure. Um, well, let me start with that. The weekly live stream, um, I like talking to people, and this really gives me an excuse on weekly or almost weekly basis to to have conversations just like the one we're having right now. Um, I sort of had this moment of realizing that Yes, I like I like fundraising, I like communications, but really at the end of the day, what I enjoy the most is connecting with others in my space. And that includes clients, it includes colleagues, it includes um, even competitors, uh, because ultimately I'm interested in what they have to say. I'm interested in getting to know them uh, as professionals and as humans. And you know, people of substance is really just an excuse for me to, to have half an hour uh, to have a chat, to have a conversation with somebody I wouldn't normally um, interact with. So that's that's the impetus behind it. So um, it's fun, and I expect to continue with that along that way. Um, as far as content creation, it's interesting. You know, over the years, we we all have social social media presence or footprint of some sort. Um, and I think once you you sort of define for yourself why you're in the space. Um, I think it becomes a lot easier and, you know, I don't have infinite time um, or frankly desire to be at every, um, 
at every uh, mixer and every networking event. So social media just allows me, uh, it's, it's a virtual way for me to engage with, uh, with peers, colleagues, clients. Um, and ultimately the content you see, those are the topics that I'm thinking about. Uh, those are the you know reflections on what I'm consuming or reading or listening to myself. Um, so it, it's really just um, just a conversation in a different that, space. That's been my advice for people that are are thinking about getting into content creation. And by content creation, I mean in this case, I, I mean posting on LinkedIn is. If you think you have something to say, don't overthink it. Just say it and put it out there, whether it's directly related to your profession or even it's a mix of personal that, um, yes, you should have a strategy to an extent, but a lot of the stuff that I post are really just kind of things that come to me in that moment or I'm reading something and I recycle those thoughts in, into a post. And and I, I find that it doesn't need to be over overly complicated and and my hope is it comes across as more authentic doing it that way. Um, one of the things that um, I, I've, I've learned a lot from looking at your material and talking to, to others like, like Anthony Jones, who's talked about the importance of incorporating part of yourself as a, as a pillar in your networking content. Um, it wasn't something that was easy for me. It's still something I have to actively work at, um, something that I'm trying to get better at. Um, but you seem so comfortable about it. I learned so much about you from your content, places that you go, things that you do, your own personal philanthropic activities. Um, is that something that came natural to you? Or how? what would you say to somebody about the benefits of, of posting um, more personal-oriented content mixed in with your thought leadership and, and information about, um, about, your, about your profession? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it was on Brene Brown that I heard about vulnerability. And the more you're willing to open up and share something of yourself, the more people are willing to share with you. So I, I just really see that uh, sharing as as first step to to forming connections and real authentic relationships. Um, you know, it's not a leap for me to to incorporate personal. Uh, personal things, because I live in a very integrated way where some people are comfortable with sort of setting boundaries be between their professional life and their personal life and their, you know, families, et cetera. Um, I, I really sort of flow in and out throughout the day. Uh, I, you know, I, I certainly have blocks of time where it's dedicated to one or another, but, uh, but it really does flow from one to another. So, uh, so when you're seeing me sharing, it's really, you know, that's just day-to-day -day life I'm living and I don't show up trying to trying to make an impression of um, look at me here's here's how intelligent I am and here's you know because it's not my I guess I don't think I'm sharing any major revelations but you know LinkedIn is not my personal fan club um, you know it's just it's a, so, a social media the purpose is to connect with others so you kind of have to show up as you are uh, op with open heart and open to connecting and sharing uh, rather than trying to impress everybody. So I think once you remove that pressure from yourself of trying to impress and, uh, and recognize that people are not there to be, uh, to be, your, uh, to be your fans, um, I think it really changes how you engage and how you, uh, how you produce content or write um, to make sure that you're interacting with people as humans. Yeah, I, and I, I, I agree that I, I think vulnerability is something that um, 
people respect when you're willing to put yourself out there because it does take a lot of guts. Um, it was hard for me to come around to, uh, and it's a reason why a lot of people never get into content creation at all, let alone talking about personal aspects. I'm, sometimes I'm hesitant to share these little anecdotes because I don't want it to seem like, I'm, like I have a concerted strategy to do this, but I don't mind sharing that the most engaged with posts that I've ever put out there was a happy anniversary message to my wife. Yeah, I believe and, that. And I've heard that example from so many people who said, oh, I just posted something I was doing with my kids. I didn't think anything of it. And it ended up getting 10,000 views. And it just, people, uh, people like interacting with people that they feel that they know on a certain level. They're not interacting with the username. Um, and I think it transcends for business as well, that it softens the relationship a little bit when you try to um, talk about maybe then working together. You, you feel like you kind of already know each other and maybe there's a little bit more trust there because you know something about the person on the other side. So it does have benefits in that way. But um, I, I think it's hard if you go into it with that as the end goal. If, if you've, uh, That's been my experience as well, that if you kind of just willing to put yourself out there and you don't think about the reaction that you're going to get and you just try to be comfortable with it, that um, you will benefit from it in, in terms of exposure and, and more people getting to know you. But definitely not easy. Um, and uh, any advice for anyone that, suffers from the thing we all suffer from them, you know, fear of, of judgment. Um, and that's the reason that they're not jumping in. Any, any advice to someone that still kind of has those underlying fears or concerns about um, exposing their opinions to the internet world? Yeah, I mean, I think that everyone's comfort level will be very different about what they're willing or unwilling to share. So I think starting from a place where, um, you know, within your own boundaries, I think that that makes sense to me. Um, but I really begin, if I had a piece of advice for anybody, it's showing up um, with a genuine desire to connect and just feeling okay, putting yourself out there, just sort of having a little bit of that security um, about putting yourself out there. The second you, you stop um, trying to imitate or being something you're not uh, and let your authentic, your own voice, your own persona shine through, um, I think that's when you'll start um, forming more, more real connections and you'll, you'll start getting resonance. Yeah. And I, I believe that LinkedIn is a good place to start that, um, not just for the professional networking aspect, but because of the nature of the site, it does strip out a lot of the ugliness of the internet and social mm -hmm. media, not entirely. There's always going to be, you know, some sure. people on there who are haters or, or whatever, but I mean, my experience is 99% of the feedback is positive. And, uh, you know, if you just do it and take the leap, you'll start to get comfortable with it very quickly and, and see the benefits. But it's that first step that's um, most, you know, that's that's hardest for, for most people. Well, Olga, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time and um, sharing uh, so much of your valuable perspective, both as a fundraiser, as a thought leader in the space and, and a content creator. Um, before we wrap things up here, is there anything on the top of your mind that you would like to share as um, just being a really important uh, topic in fundraising today that uh, nonprofit leaders should be thinking about? I think I begin and end always with empathy and it's uh, empathy for, uh, for donors and what their point of view might be and what they're experiencing. It's empathy for 
for the sub for the subject matter we deal with empathy for people animals uh environment uh whatever the topic may be we're dealing with uh and it's empathy for how we interact with each other it's it's sort of trying to see um somebody else's perspective i think is a very uh very powerful um mind shift it's Empathy is not about being extra nice or extra kind. It's just really about understanding and connecting. So, uh, so that's probably what I would do with. Terrific advice. And if listeners would like to get to know more about you or your, your work, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Um, certainly on LinkedIn. Um, I tend to be pretty active on there. Or you can also, um, uh, it's, it's just Olga Wolfman uh, on LinkedIn or at lemon-skies.com. Um, and I try to post there pretty regularly as well. Wonderful. Well, we'll link to all of your information in the show notes. Uh, Olga Waltman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and, and the great discussion. I appreciate it. And I know our audience does as well. Thank you so much.